Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Hey, welcome to uh, Focus so uh, I am actually currently driving home from Texas. I uh, dropped my son off at one of the highlights of the year for him, uh, a camp specifically for uh, uh, special needs kids. He has just the greatest time there. And um, that's important enough for me to take him there. Uh, that I, that's why I am not here in person tonight. However, by the magic of video, uh, I am here tonight to share with you to continue our series on the foundations and tonight we're going to talk about the fall of man and I think it's a really important message so I wanted to make sure we didn't miss it so I'm glad that you're watching it thank you for joining us so we've been talking about foundations of the faith we talked about the nature of God we talked about his otherness his holiness he's distinct from everything else in the universe we talked about the fact that the Trinity is one of the ways in which he is distinct um, and that we talked about the, the otherness and the mystery of that, but it also means he's a relationship, he's a community, he understands these things, kind of crazy and amazing thing about this holiness of God. And then last week we talked about the nature of man, and we talked about that we also were created holy, we were set apart, we were different from, from the other parts of creation because we had purpose and we had, a, we had the image of God, we were part of what we were made was made in the image of God. We talked about the fact that though we were also made as frail humans, though, always distinct from the eternal God and that we're not perfect. We can only be in one place at a time and, and we're not all powerful and, and there's limits. There's just limitations to who we are as human beings. And then we talked about the fact that since the fall, which we didn't talk about, but since the fall, we've also become uh, corrupt that we've become, that, that, that every part of us has become corrupt. Now, that doesn't mean the original glory can't still be seen. It doesn't mean we don't still carry that image of God in us. Um, to some degree, we do. But look, well, tonight, we're going to talk about what that fall is, that entails, what's called the fall. This is the moment at which things went from being perfect to being imperfect. And we don't have all the answers of everything that happened, but the scripture does give us some ideas. So we'll start in Genesis 2, 8 through 9. So we actually looked at this last week, so you may remember this verse. It says this. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So remember when it talks about man at this point, it says that he created man, male and female, he created them. So it's talking really about, about mankind. And so he plants in the middle of the garden the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All well and good. But then it says this in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So we mentioned this last week and we talked a little bit about the fact that one of the limitations of humanity is that we do not understand the difference between good and evil. That we actually don't even have the ability to discern good from evil, to figure out what's good and what's evil. And this sounds very strange to us because although it's a limitation, it's something that we depend upon, right? We teach our kids difference between right and wrong. We have to learn how to do right and wrong. We make rules so that we don't destroy ourselves and destroy each other. And, and so we, we acknowledge that it's something we have to do. I'm not saying it isn't. But I think if we look at it honestly, we also acknowledge that we're really, really terrible at it. We're not good at it. 
we have the hardest time figuring out rules and how to make them and how to make the right rules. And, and then we make a lot of really bad rules. And then we have to make really good rules or what we think are good rules to overcome the bad rules. But sometimes that just ends up being worse. We're just really, really bad at it. We don't know how to deal with the shades of gray. We don't know how to deal with different circumstances. It's, it's very, very difficult to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And we think we're good at it. And we have whole schools of thought of people who try to really pin down what it is. But it's really complicated. And, and this verse here, which says that we're not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that in the time when the world was perfect, that we weren't even supposed to be able, it wasn't part of what we were designed to do, to be able to know the difference between good and evil. So we talked a little bit about that last week. I want to share with you a little more about that. I want to share with you why, in fact, being able to discern good from evil is a woeful burden. It's not a good thing. It's a burden that we've, we've never been able to deal with well. We've had a hard time with it from the beginning. As we already mentioned, number one, we're terrible at it. We're just not good at it. And again, if you just look at history honestly, you can see we're not good at it. We've never been good at it, right? We, have, we, we make these rules and then years go by and we change the rules. And we assume that we change the rules because we get smarter as we go. C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. He says it's foolish to assume that just because we're later in time, we're smarter. Now, there are some things that we learn, some things that we begin to see, right? Once upon a time, maybe we didn't have contact with people all over the world. Now the world's smaller. We see that the human race is really one race. We see that we're really all one people. Maybe that's something we've learned, right? And yet, even with that, don't we still struggle with understanding what the best thing to do? I believe there are people, for example, in our country who have the best intentions in mind in how to deal with the, 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 the racial history of the racial divide and the things that have happened in our past. And they come to very different conclusions about what the best way to deal with it is. And I don't think it's because one side's evil and one side's good. I think we genuinely are having a hard time figuring out how do we make up for the bad that's been done? What's the best way to approach things? And, and so we're just bad at it. But, but we can see it all the time. Bureaucracies drive us nuts because the rules don't quite make sense, right? We have a very difficult time. And then even in our own lives, how often are we conflicted? How often are we trying to figure out what the priorities should be and how we should do what we need to do and how we should do what's right? You know, you, you look at the, the, one of the things that's really, really a big deal in our country right now, and with good reason, is the whole pro-choice, pro-life division that exists in our country. And, and I know it's easy to simply point your finger at someone on the other side and say, well, the problem is they're evil. They don't care. They have the wrong priorities. And yet, I think if we look honestly at it, we, we see that there's a desire to do the right thing, and yet there's this heated argument about what the right thing is. And some of it, in this case, comes down to not even knowing what to prioritize, right? Some people believe that we should prioritize the fetus in the womb because it is a human life as equivalent to a young child. And because some people believe that, they believe that the life of that child should take precedence over the autonomy of the woman's body. Some people believe nothing should take precedence over the autonomy of the woman's body. But it's a priority issue. Do you see that? We're trying to decide which is, which is more right, which is more good, and which is more evil. And we're not good at it. And that's the other reason that ethics is a woeful burden is because, frank, quite frankly, it divides us, right? I mean, if we just all knew what was right, there'd be a whole lot less division. Because I don't think there are that many people who want to do what's wrong but we don't agree on what's right. And we have a hard time even prioritizing. We can even agree on a certain set of values, but then when it comes to prioritizing which one takes precedence over another one, that's where we get stuck. That's where we have a hard time. And so we, we have all these areas where we don't even know how to do it and it divides us. The, the, the ethical question divides us. We get divided not so much over just 
actual absolute good and evil, but over my understanding of what's good and evil versus your understanding of what's good and evil. Because we're not good at it, it doesn't unite us around common causes, it divides us. Now, occasionally, when there's agreement, it can unite us, right? We can all understand this is good, right? And we move forward it. Um, and sometimes there are clear bad actors and we can all unite in good against them and that's fine. But you have to admit, you have to acknowledge that, that this, this place that we've got in our world where we're having to discern what's right and what's wrong, it, it divides us as often as it unites us and it's a problem. The other thing it does is it feeds both self-righteousness and shame. Because we're not good at it, then we think we're good at it, then we, get, we feel very proud. We get very proud about what our applying our standards. The things we think are most important are often the things we're good at. And so we say, this is what's most important and look how well I do it. And it makes us feel self-righteous. It can go the other way too. We can set standards of things. We can decide something's right or wrong that isn't, right? Someone who's abused can sometimes get the impression that it was their fault. They can think they did something wrong, literally think that feel that because we're bad at knowing what's right and what's wrong. And that can lead to shame that isn't even in the right place. So this, this burden of shame, this burden of self-righteousness that we feel, this, this inability to really be good at knowing what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong, it just leads to these, these, these problems uh, of the way we see ourselves in terms of self-righteousness or in shame. But here's the real, the bottom line, right? So when you think about this situation, he says, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the question becomes, well, what are they supposed to do, right? How do they know what's good and how do they know what's bad? How can they, if, if they didn't already have this knowledge, then when God says to them and says, don't do the wrong thing, how can they even know? Well, the answer is kind of obvious, actually. The answer is that the way they knew it was wrong to eat from that tree was because God said so. Notice that before that, they wouldn't have had any idea it was wrong. So what was intended in the perfect world was that Adam and Eve wouldn't have to have decided what was right and wrong. They would have known that God was good and they would have been able to trust that God was good. And they would have been able to trust that God only wanted to lead them to good, right? It sounds scary to us to submit our values and our understanding of what's good for us to someone else. And why is that scary? Because we do not have never encountered anybody in all of human existence whose purposes are always benevolent and altruistic. Very often, they're not, right? They're nefarious. And we don't want to give someone that power of telling us what's right and wrong for us. That is a problem. That's problematic. I'm not encouraging that. But what if God was completely good? What if everything we understand about goodness comes from God? And then he says to us, this is good and this is bad. The truth is, he is the expert. He's the only expert. He's the only one who never makes a mistake. And if that's true, that he never makes a mistake and he's, and he's always out for our good, then what that means is we could trust him entirely. And what God's plan was with Adam and Eve was not to create people who had the ability to discern good from evil, but to create people who would follow him into all goodness and away from all evil. In other words, deciding what's right and wrong ourselves ultimately conflicts with trusting God and finding good. Even today, when we have to, sometimes we have to decide what's right and what's wrong. And sometimes it's really clear what God says to us is right and wrong. And we have to make a decision. Am I going to trust myself? I'm going to trust God. And following a source of ethics, deciding for ourselves what's right and wrong will always at some point lead to a conflict with trusting God. Now, it's easy to see this in areas where we now understand better. Like, for example, there weren't a lot of people, to be honest, in the church, but there were some in the church who said that, that, that what they believed was that, that slavery was good, that, that people of a different race were subhuman. 
Well, they were wrong. They were clearly wrong. And if they had trusted God, they would have known they were wrong. But instead, they trusted their own understanding. We can see for them how it would have been better for them to trust in the God who created all races and all human beings equal. But they didn't. And we do the same thing, and it's harder to see it in ourselves. When we clear, so clearly think something is right, and God says it's not right, it's not good. Or we see something that's, that's, that we think is bad, and God says, no, that's good. We, we just It prevents us from just trusting him completely because instead we rely on our own understanding. There's a proverb which says, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That's what the plan was in the Garden of Eden, that God would always lead them to goodness. He would never be wrong. He would never mislead them. He would never be mistaken. He would never be in error. He would never be selfish in the sense of doing something for him that wasn't good for them. He would always lead them into goodness. That was the plan. That's why we didn't have to know good from evil. Now, here's the thing. We live at a time after Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so it's really hard for us to grasp this. We still want to hang in there and say, yeah, but we have to figure it out, right? And so there's certain lies we tell ourselves to cope. There's certain things that we tell ourselves to help us cope with the fact that we are bad at knowing good from evil, to cope with the fact that the world is fallen, that in fact we live in a world where now what are we supposed to do because evil does exist. So how do we then decide what's good and what's evil? And I just want to really quickly go through these lies because they are lies and I think they're important to point out. These are not things that were true at the beginning and they don't have to be true and they won't be true for eternity. But because we live in the midst of the fall, sometimes we convince ourselves these are true because it seems to be the only way to cope. Because to hope too much in a perfect goodness, that's hard for us to do because we haven't seen it because God is that other. Number one, we have the really popular one, which is that balance is the ultimate good, right? That it's not about, that, that it really isn't about uh, making sure everything was good, that if everything was good, that would somehow be bad, right? We see this in Star Wars, where you have to maintain the balance between the light and the dark side of the force. Or there's all sorts of stories and all sorts of ideas of this yin-yang, where the important thing is there has to be this nice good and evil balance. But here's the problem with that. That's not even logically consistent. If balance is the ultimate good, then what we're being saying is that imbalance is the ultimate bad. But if balance is the ultimate good, then don't we need to balance some of that balance and imbalance? So the perfect good would be not completely balanced. Well, yeah, you can see the paradox. So this idea, though, it's how we deal with it. We're like, well, evil exists, and sometimes we make mistakes, so it must just be that that has to, we have to, it's okay, as long as we keep that in moderation or in balance. It's not true. The reality is the Garden of Eden was completely good. See, we have a hard time believing that. I used to watch The Walking Dead. I stopped watching it after too many seasons because they always dangled this idea in front of you that, oh, here's a good society. But anytime you went somewhere that was good, it turned out it was too good. If it was too good, it meant it was bad. There was somebody hiding something. So we have a, it's impossible for us to believe in sort of this perfect goodness out there because again, our life doesn't have it. So if there is no perfect goodness, then we settle for balance and think somehow that's enough. But what if there could be complete, perfect, actual goodness where everything that was good was still good, including you wouldn't be bored, including interest, all those things. Balance is not the ultimate good. In fact, God, justice, God is a God of justice. Ultimately, he's going to wipe out evil. He's going to wipe out sorrow. He's going to wipe out injustice. We don't want a balance of justice and injustice. We want perfect justice. We don't want a balance of love and hate. We want perfect love, right? This is the truth. That, that, that God's perfect goodness is what he has in mind for us. The fact that we live in a fallen world that where we have to decide between good and evil doesn't mean that we have to settle for an idea that for all of eternity balance is all we're seeking. 
Number two, sometimes we say, well, we wouldn't know good without evil. I hear that sometimes. Well, we wouldn't even know what good was if evil didn't exist. Actually, that's a statement people make with no evidence. There's no reason to believe that's true. In fact, I can give you what I think are correlations or good parallels. Would we know what light was if we'd never seen darkness? Yes, we would. We would know that light was the thing that let us view other things. We would still, in fact, be able to scientifically verify what light waves were. You don't have to have darkness to know what light is. You might recognize, you know, when darkness came, you might realize how, how beautiful light was, but that doesn't mean that you would despise it or not know what it was without darkness. And the truth is, darkness is not a thing, if you think about it, right? Light is a thing. Darkness is the absence of light. It's just when you remove that thing. So what's really true is that we, you can't have darkness without light because dark is just simply the absence of light. But you can absolutely have perfect light without any darkness. Same is true with, with heat and cold, right? Cold isn't a thing. Cold is the absence of heat. So you could know what heat was without cold, but you can never know what cold was without heat because it's the absence of that. Well, I think good and evil are the same. God is good. Evil is every step away from God. Evil is, is the removal from God. Can we know what goodness is without evil? Yes, it's God. It's all these things we know, but we don't need to know evil to know good. That's just, there's no evidence that's true. We tell ourselves that to try to explain why evil is here. And by the way, I don't think the answer I just gave explains all the origins of evil. That's just one of those questions that is, I think, beyond our understanding. But I think it does help us to think of it that way, that evil is the absence of good. It's a step away from God. But goodness is the real thing. And you could have complete goodness in the world with no evil. And you know, one proof of this is if you believe in eternity and you believe in God at all, that was true for eternity before we were created. There was an infinity of time where God knew good without knowing evil. And there was no need for him to know evil. So it's just not true. We can absolutely know good without knowing evil. Now, we do know evil, so we have to figure out how to explain that. But again, in a perfect world, it would be absolutely possible to know good without evil. Number three, life without conflict is boring or life without death is meaningless. I really like the TV show, The Good Place. It was pretty good, but, but it wasn't theological. It was just a fantasy. But one of the things they did at the end of that show, spoiler alert, was they decided that, that, their, that eternity wasn't really a good thing. Living forever wasn't good because without the, the specter of death, life becomes meaningless. You know, it's really interesting that Solomon in Scripture says the opposite. He says it's death that makes our life meaningless because everything we build, everything we do, gets swallowed up by death. It's destroyed, so it doesn't matter. So he came at it from the opposite perspective, believing that what made life meaningless was death. And what would make life meaningful was eternity. If the things we did actually had impact forever. That's pretty cool to think about. And the, again, the reality is we don't have any proof or any evidence that life without death is meaningless. And we don't have any evidence that life without conflict is boring. I understand that stories without conflict are boring, but that's different. That's because of our lack of creativity and imagination. Imagine that we served a God who was so perfectly creative that he was creating new stuff all the time right? You know that high we sometimes get from a new piece of technology or a new game or something that's exciting and then it goes away and it fades? What if that never faded? What if there was somebody who was always creating new things and it was always interesting and it was always things and we were learning stuff our whole life? We can learn and be interested and invested without conflict. But again, because that's not the world we live in, we tend to tell ourselves these lies to cope say, well, conflict is necessary to keep things interesting, to keep things from being boring. And bottom line is this, since utopia is impossible for us, we tend to assume it's impossible, period. It is true it's impossible for us. See, this we do have evidence for. Historically, we cannot create a utopian world, but we keep trying. And that's the question. 
Why do we keep trying if we really believe in balance? If we really believe that you can't know good without evil? If we really believe that life without conflict is boring? Why do we keep trying to create a perfect, fully just society? Why do we keep trying to create a perfect, fully loving community? Why do we do those things? Because deep down in our heart of hearts, we know that that is a worthy goal. Because we know that utopia is out there somewhere. And God has created it, is creating it, is moving us there, created it at the very beginning. And it wasn't necessary that there be evil in order for that good to exist. The good existed as it was. But then God presented this choice. He said to Adam and Eve, I need you to trust me and not decide for yourself what's good and evil. That's the crux. You need to submit to me that I will lead you into all goodness. I am goodness. If you decide you don't need me, you're complete without me, that you can find your own goodness, that is by definition stepping away from goodness and you will immediately begin to notice that lack of goodness. And one of the good things, of, uh, one of the things that is good is life. And so as you move away from goodness, you move away from life. And that's what God told them. If you don't trust me and submit to me for all good things, then you will die. And then we get to the deception. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Now, clearly he didn't. It's fascinating to watch how the serpent, whoever this is, and by the way, I think whether you take this as metaphor or literal doesn't have to change the meaning. I actually think this is literal, but if you don't believe that there was actually a serpent who spoke these things, and this is just a story to tell us the process of deception that Satan pulled upon them, I'm okay with that, as long as you don't erase the very tangible, sort of clear points that are here. So the serpent, we don't know why. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This is the way temptation and deception often comes. It makes God sound unreasonable. God doesn't want good things for you, right? That's the implication here. God put all these good things here and he doesn't want you to have any of them. Well, she answers appropriately. The woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. I want you to notice that already what's happened is she has already added to God's command so that again, it already sounds less good. The devil gives a big lie. He says God doesn't want you to have any good things. And she says, well, no, that's not true. He did say though, we couldn't eat from this tree or touch it. It doesn't say any there, anything in there about not touching it. She's already added. She's already decided. Here's another layer of, of goodness. It makes God sound unreasonable. We often add to God's commands in a way that make him feel more burdensome than he is. John says in 1 John that God's commands are not burdensome. Fascinating statement. You can wrestle with that a lot. But I think part of it is that we add things to what God says to make it harder. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. He said, just don't eat from it. One of the things I really like is the idea that if he said don't touch it, then it becomes this thing you could accidentally do, right? You could not be paying attention and bump into it. But what you can't do is accidentally eat from it. That's really unlikely. And so I, I think, again, it just builds these layers. So this is kind of the beginning of the, of the deceptions here. But it goes on. Um, the serpent said, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice that he identifies this ability to know good and evil as being like God. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This was an equal partnership here, I think, in the sin. So again, notice the bottom line of what happens here, though. He says, God says, if you eat of this, you die, that it's bad for you. He says, but that's not true. In fact, when you eat of it, you'll, you'll get more good 
from it. And she says, then she looks at the tree and she decides for herself, it looks good for food, it looks pleasing to the eye, and it will give me wisdom. What is happening here with Adam and Eve? They are deciding they know what's good, even though God said it wasn't. And I think these are the deceptions that temptation takes at this moment, right? Number one, that God is wrong about how bad this is. You will not certainly die. This happens all the time. When we don't want to trust God, when we're trying to figure out right from wrong ourselves, we often tend to think that God is overstating how bad something is. I think a really, really classic example today is, is, is the idea of sex outside of marriage, the idea of sex outside of a specific context. A lot of people are like, why, do the, why does the church still make such a big deal of that? You know, it's fascinating. People like to say that the, 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 you know, people on different sides of the aisle will sometimes say that, look, Scripture is clearly about social justice and not so much about sex. And the other side will say Scripture is clearly about sexual purity and not so much about social justice. Well, the problem is it's about both. When you listen to the prophets of the Old Testament, they speak about both pretty much equally. And, and the, the truth is that God says there is something there that's really beautiful and important about sex, but that there's also something there that is not so good if it's done outside of the right context. And what are our tendencies to say? Well, God's wrong about that, right? How can it be bad? How can it be bad if it feels so good? You know, God is wrong about that. So we, we first have a tendency to say God is overstating how bad things is. But then more importantly, then the devil goes on to say, when you eat of it, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. He's keeping from you something good. This is the bottom line. If God is keeping good from us, then we should not trust him, right? I mean, that makes sense. If, if, but that's the temptation is that the devil is saying, you need to figure out for yourself what's right and wrong because God, you can't trust God to do it for you. He's going to be wrong about what's bad and he's going to keep good from you. He doesn't desire good for you. In short, you can't trust him. Trust your own discernment more. This is the nature of the fall. It's not just that they ate of a particular fruit that God didn't want them to eat. This whole story of the fall and how it happened is that God said, I will lead you into all goodness, just trust me. If you don't trust me to do that, that means you're going to decide for yourself what's right and wrong will put you at odds with me. I need you to trust me. Not, not for my sake, but for yours. If you don't trust me, you'll make your own decisions and you'll sometimes get it wrong because you're not God. And when you get it wrong, you'll step away from goodness, you'll step away from life, and you'll step into evil, and you'll step into death, and that's not where I want you. I want you here with me. Just stick with me. But the deceptions of temptation for almost every sin comes down to the bottom line of you can't trust God when he says what's good and he says what's bad. you got to trust yourself. The bottom line is this. We were never created. And hear this, because even as Christians in the church, this is very difficult for us. We, we have, we've become very confused about this. It's that easy to get confused. We were never created to figure out how to do good and avoid evil. We were created to trust God and enjoy never-ending good. It's a very different picture, isn't it? We weren't created by God to figure out how to do good and avoid evil. We were created to trust God and enjoy never-ending good. And in that context, for Adam and Eve, at the moment he says, don't eat from the tree, the only good was to trust God, and the only evil was to not trust God. That's all they needed to know. There may have been other good and other evil, but just knowing that would have kept them in the right path, would have kept them on a never-ending path of goodness. Just stick with God, and you can't lose. That's the result. All right? What's fascinating, and I'll go over these in a second, is let's read what happened as a result. Because it's kind of proof of the whole thing. That if, if the temptation was true, if they really were able to discern what's good and evil, then, then, then they should have been right and God should have been wrong. 
and we don't have to guess. We can look and see what happened and what were they. So this is what it says. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And that's the last moment it sounds like maybe they were right, right? Because they do eat. It says their eyes are opened, but in a really weird way. It says the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So what is the result of having eaten from this tree? Do they actually understand that what they should be doing is trusting God for all goodness? That would be the right response. Do they actually understand they shouldn't have disobeyed God? That would be the right response. No, what immediately happens is they feel shame. And they feel shame about something irrelevant at the, mind, at the moment. Do you see that? They've been naked all along. Why is it suddenly changed? Even when God says, who told you that you were naked? He's like, you don't even know what that, that was not even a thing until now. Shame came upon them because they tried to figure out what was right and wrong. I think even today, I think guilt can be good. I think conviction can be good. I think recognizing when we've done something wrong and repenting of it can be good. But there's this thing called shame, which I think is almost never good. I, I say almost only to leave the door open, but I suspect it's never good. There's this thing called shame, which is this sense of just being wrong, of being naked, of being incorrect in our nakedness. And, and it comes from this idea of trying to figure out what's right and wrong and getting it wrong. And because of that, we often feel shame about things that we shouldn't feel even guilty about. And we don't feel shame about things maybe we should feel guilty about. And that's what happens here. They suddenly are ashamed. They're naked. And this shame leads to a hiding from intimacy. Consider that prior to this happening, prior to the fall, they had complete intimate fellowship with God. They weren't afraid of him. They weren't holding back from him. They weren't concerned about him. They just knew he was good and they loved him and they walked with him. And when he was walking in the garden, he, they walked with him and they walked with each other in nakedness, fully vulnerable and fully exposed. And there was not any concern about it. There was no fear and there was no shame. But now that they've tried to decide what's right and wrong, they feel shame. They're hiding from intimacy and they're running from God, which means they're running from good. This is the repeating thing we do in our life over and over. We do the wrong thing. And then instead of coming back from that, so often we keep running from good. We keep doing things that are self-destructive. I don't know about you, but I find this very frustrating. We all know we do it, right? They're like, why do I keep doing that? That never works out well. Because we're still running from God. We're still running from good because that's what happens when we try to figure out what's right and wrong. We end up feeling shame about the wrong things. We end up hiding from the intimacy and we end up running from God. And God is, that's why he says, where are you? He knows where they are. But it's that, it's that testimony from him. You should be here. Not for me, for you. What happened to you? And that's where he says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? I commanded you not to eat from. He's pointing out to them, your problem is not that you're naked. Your problem is you're now in this cycle I was trying to protect you from of trying to figure out what's the right thing to do and the wrong thing to avoid. I wish you would have just trusted me. And then the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Notice who he blames, not really her, but God. You gave me this woman, it's her fault, which means it's your fault. Either way, this is the wrong response, right? And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Look, these are all things that have some elements of truth. God did create the woman. The woman did hand him the fruit, but nobody made Adam eat of the fruit, right? And the serpent did try to deceive Eve, but nobody made her eat of the fruit. So 
these are all things that the other so the other thing that has happened because of our trying to do what's figure out what's right and wrong instead of trusting god is increased confusion about responsibility how rare is it and unique is it to see somebody in the public eye who just simply says i was wrong i messed up i did the wrong thing and it wasn't your fault and it wasn't their fault and it wasn't uh, someone else's fault it was my fault i find this to be one of the most difficult things to teach our kids own your responsibility for what you've done wrong because they don't we don't see it in our culture very often do we we don't see it in humanity it's a rare thing when someone simply says i was wrong and then we have oops and then we have pardon me then we have all of the entropy blessing that only comes through toil and life only through pain he says now there will be weeds now your work will be harder now to grow life will take effort now to create a child will hurt it will be painful. All these blessings that existed before now only come through pain. It's no wonder that we now think that, that you blessing only comes through pain and toil because that is a result of the fall, right? We think, oh, that's what it is. So even when we think of the idea of them, them, them cultivating the garden before the fall and after is a very different thing. Cultivating the garden before the fall, yeah, it was work, but it wasn't toil. It wasn't toil, it was purpose, it was fun. Think of the kind of things you like to do, the things you like to put energy into, and then take out all the toil. And again, you may say, well, then that takes all the reward. No, no, we don't have any evidence of that. But because that's all we ever see is that blessing only comes through labor. Blessing only ever comes through toil. Blessing only ever comes through pain. That's a result of the fall. That's where we are. So shame and and a lack of intimacy and running from God and increased confusion about responsibility. It, it, we continue to not know what's right and wrong. And then this idea that entropy exists forever. This idea that blessing only comes through toil. This idea that life only comes through pain. These are things that came as a result of not trusting God for what's good. Because these are all steps away from goodness. So now goodness is still attainable, but it's much harder. And we're much further. In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's talking to people who clearly are living human beings. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So what, what is this passage telling us? It's telling us that what God said to them, that you will certainly die, it happened. That this, this breath of life that was breathed into us, the spirit of God, this, this most direct connection to the image of God is gone. It's died. Our connection with God is gone. Our connection with good is gone. Our ability to simply hear from God what's right trust him and always live in never-ending goodness is gone. Now we are forced to try to figure out what's right and wrong, and we're terrible at it. And as a result of that, we have become identified only by our cravings and our emotions and our thoughts. We don't even know any other way to discern what's right and wrong, except by what we can figure out and what we feel and, and what we want. Other than that, we can't even figure it out. We don't have a barometer aside from those things. We need God for completion, but the real tragedy is that while we feel incomplete, 
because we've been disconnected from God. We continue to tell ourselves over and over we don't need God. We continue to tell ourselves we can figure out what's right and wrong. We continue to repeat the error that Adam and Eve meant over and over. Why do we keep repeating it? Because we're disconnected from God. Because we don't know what's right and wrong, so we can't even see that that is wrong. This is the real curse of the fall that we repeat the same deceptions over and over, so that God can't be trusted, that we can only trust ourselves, that there is no perfect, benevolent author of all goodness who can lead us in never-ending goodness. That's the curse of the fall. Our self-reliance, our sense that we need to do it, our continued hiding from God, the fact that we're controlled by our shame and our self-righteousness, by our fear and our pride. Goodness waits for it. This verse hints at that. It tells us that God did something by his grace to make us alive again. That's the other part of the plan, but we avoid it over and over and over. This is the hope I want to leave you with, because the fall is a terrible, terrible tragedy, right? It's the worst moment. This is, this is, this is when everything went wrong, and it is a cycle we can't get out of. God says this over and over through his prophets. Even though I keep telling you what the right thing is to do is, you can't do it. You can't even do the right thing because we're caught in this cycle of trying to figure out what's right and wrong and getting it wrong over and over and over and over and not coming back to trusting God because that would be right and we can't figure that out. But there is good news and we will be getting to that because the plan is that the fall was not the end. It didn't surprise God. He foresaw it. He knew it was going to happen and he had a plan for it. A plan to redeem not just us, but the entire universe. Romans 8 says this, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You hear that? Creation itself didn't make the choice that Adam and Eve made, right? The universe, the world didn't make the choice that Adam and Eve made, but it fell prey to the curse. Entropy, toil, burden, all part of the creation. Everything dies now. Everything leads to decay because everything is stepped away from God. Why? Because Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. We were made to represent God. We were made to care for. We had an authority and responsibility to care for the universe. And so when we made the wrong decision, guess what? We made it for all of them. Ouch. <laughs> so it's not just us. It's the entire universe which groans under this entropy, this decay, this bondage to decay, which it shouldn't have. But the good news is, creation waits in eager expectation. Paul says their pain is like childbirth. That for the last thousands of years, the creation has been undergoing childbirth, waiting for the children of God to be revealed. And the beautiful, amazing thing is, that's the redeemed. That's us. That's the people that... that, that, that that God calls back, that we are able to return to submit to God, that we go back to saying, I'm going to trust God instead of us, that as that is revealed, then the whole universe can be redeemed. We'll get to that plan. That's God's plan. That, that, that all of this, we don't need to rationalize it as balance or necessary evils or simply part of life. It's just birth pains. And once the baby comes, all will be forgotten, only this time, never to happen again. But we're in the middle of that, right? And so that's where the gospel comes in. But I want you to understand the need for the gospel in the fall. So that's the fall. That's what, the, that's, what that's all about. Thank you for check, signing in and watching this. Uh, definitely feel free to leave comments on the, the Facebook page. Talk about it in your focus groups. There's a lot here. Really chew on it, wrestle with it, understand it um, to the best you can. 
But understand the bottom line is the fall occurred because we thought we could figure out good and evil ourselves instead of trusting the God of goodness to lead us into everlasting goodness. So now we have that same choice. Can we submit to the God of the universe and trust that he knows what's good even when it doesn't make sense to us? Even if there are parts of the gospel that we don't get, that we don't understand, that we don't like, can we trust that there's a God who's smarter and better, more good, more loving, and more benevolent than we've ever imagined? That's the real challenge of understanding the fall. So thank you for hanging out with me, and I will see you all back in person next week. And like I say, enjoy your focus groups. Keep chewing on these things. All right, see you, see you all later. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.